we're in the home stretch. We've explored a few case studies, read a couple books, and now we're going to put everything we've learned to practice by examining a few examples of gentrifying structures. Easier said than done, of course. My name is Ajay Bande, and this is Perfectly Nice Neighbors, an exploration of gentrification in the Boston area. Let's be real here. This is episode 8, and I still don't really know what I mean by gentrifying structure. I don't even know what to look for. Am I just looking for shiny buildings, or a heightened ratio of lattes per capita? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. I've picked out five places, I'll tell you why they're on this list, I'll read through their websites, and you can make your own decisions too. Let's start in Plymouth, for the sake of keeping the order of the rest of the podcast. Specifically, let's start with the Pine Hills. Lee Hartman, Director of Planning and Development in Plymouth, cited this development as an example of exactly what the town of Plymouth wants. But, Katie and Annie Donegan, whom I also interviewed, cited this same development as proof that Plymouth is gentrifying. So it's worth looking at, even if I'm still not sure what relation Plymouth has to gentrification. The Pine Hills is a very large development of mostly single-family homes in Plymouth, Massachusetts. It's next to Route 3, Plymouth South High School, and several golf courses. There is a wide selection of residences here, from apartments to cottages to townhomes to custom builds. There is this huge emphasis on nature and history. There are a bunch of walking and biking trails, the roads apparently follow the natural topography of the land, they're preserving a small historic road, and they restored this old tavern that dates back to the early colonists. It actually sounds like a really nice place. The price for all this? I couldn't find rents for the apartments, but the houses go from the mid-300,000 range, which is very nice job territory, to millions, plural. But once you're in, you're pretty well taken care of. It really is its own miniature town. In fact, the Pine Hills has a grocery store, a liquor store, a gas station, a U.S. post office, a Beth Israel Deaconess branch, a dentist, a psychotherapist's office, an assisted living facility, an attorney's office specializing in wills, estate management and real estate, a neighborhood association, a four-star hotel with a spa, a gym, another spa, a furniture store, a breakfast place slash cafe, an Italian place, a bistro and wine bar, that old tavern, they restored it into a real restaurant, and lots of golf. We'll get to that. Effectively, a lot of the routine services a modern human requires are accessible within the Pine Hills development. There are few reasons to leave the Pine Hills beyond work and school, and because Route 3 and Plymouth South are right next to the Pine Hills, even then you don't have to travel too far. On one hand, fine, it's convenient, and we Americans like being left alone. But on the other hand, where's the real connection to the rest of Plymouth? 
Same deal with outsiders. There are very few reasons for a Plymouth resident who doesn't live in the Pine Hills to come to the Pine Hills. No artery roads go through the development. None of the businesses here face out to the main roads. Sure, that Italian place is almost certainly open to the public, but who's going to drive into a subdivision for a restaurant? Not even Google Street View cars went into the place. As far as I can tell, there are three big reasons for a non-resident of the Pine Hills to come to the Pine Hills. 1. Monthly arts markets. A bunch of artists come on a Saturday, there's lots of jewelry, ceramics, stained glass, that kind of thing. It sounds rad. 2. A yearly village green event. It also sounds like a ton of fun. And 3. Golf. There are two 18-hole golf courses. They seem pretty nice. And if I cared about golf, I'm sure I'd be really excited. To quote the website, They may look private, but they're actually among the nation's top-rated daily fee courses, open to the public. The holes are also interspersed among private residences, but sure, open to the public. But that's more or less it. The open to the public events are relatively infrequent, and at least the arts markets seem geared toward upper middle class white people. I don't think they have zines there. And golf is... golf. It's not that expensive, but it's still pretty expensive. That's where I think the worries about gentrification kinda stick. The Pine Hills was built in a forest and not on top of an old neighborhood, but it's a haven for upper middle class people, even rich people. And its existence provides no direct benefit to the working class people of Plymouth. I mean, the extra tax money is great for the town, I won't deny that, but the development really leans into its New Englandness and its Plymouthness without giving a whole lot to the other residents of Plymouth. Amber and I found a couple of suspiciously fancy residential buildings when we were driving around, and I tracked two of them down on the internet. The first is one north of Boston, which I talked about briefly then. It's off Route 1, it's next to the commuter rail in Mystic Plaza, and it only briefly mentions that it's in Chelsea. As far as amenities go, it has a basketball court, a spin studio, a fitness center because the word gym isn't hip or something, bamboo floors, designer kitchens and bathrooms, and a dog daycare. Remember the dogs from last week? One North of Boston, wow that's a long name, also touts something called the Chelsea Art Walk, which sounds like something that would appeal to someone who would otherwise move to Sowa. Although there's sparse mention of the absolutely alive Chelsea Broadway, possibly because half the signs there have Spanish words on them. As for price, studios start around 1800 a month, one bed start between 1900 to 2000 a month, two beds start between 2400 to 3000 a month, and three beds start between 3200 to 3400 US dollars per month. Yes, three grand a month for an apartment. And then there's one Webster, which Amber actually pointed out to me during the little tour. So this is yet another um, housing complex that went up a few years ago. Uh, very nice, but also very expensive, and it's right across the elementary school. This is from the website. One Webster, located in Boston, Massachusetts, is the epitome of luxury apartment living. 
Our one and two bedroom floor plans are fully equipped with every modern convenience, including hardwood floors, sprawling walk-in closets and select units, gourmet style kitchens, and granite countertops. That's right, we're not in Chelsea, we're in Boston. I mean, it's not a pants on fire line. I tell people I'm from Boston sometimes, but really? Anyway, beyond the niceties mentioned in this little blurb, One Webster also offers a pool, a 24-hour fitness center, and oversized energy-efficient windows. It's also pet-friendly, which means although there's no dog daycare, you can still have a cat or dog in your apartment. The website says breed restrictions apply, I called, and it turns out pitbulls are one of those restricted breeds. Curious indeed. Even more curious, the website does not mention the public elementary school literally across the street or the pre-k center that's basically part of the building. You would think we're across the street from a school would be a huge selling point, but no dice. As for prices, one beds run around 1800 a month and two beds are around 2000 a month. It's not as fancy and pricey as one north of Boston, but it's still quite fancy and pricey. South End. Let's talk about Troy Boston, a high-rise apartment building in Sowa, south of Washington Street. I found this development through the Sowa Boston website, which has the heading, Built on the Mission to Support Small Businesses, Artists, and Entrepreneurs. This is from the website. Once known as a region of neglected warehouses in Boston's South End, the Sowa Art Plus Design District has experienced a dramatic renaissance blossoming into a world-renowned arts, retail, and lifestyle destination. But what about Cause? What about Mel King? Weren't they around? This website was mostly about the artists and designers in this area, but there was also a link to Troy Boston. And considering that Tissot flagged Sowa branding things as signs of gentrification, I figured this place was worth a look. This apartment building is all about art and sustainability. It has commissions from artists tied to the South End. It's LEED Gold certified. It has Nest thermostats. And it's beautiful. It also has wood floors, rooftop terraces, a swimming pool and cabana, a yoga and fitness studio, a dog run and dog wash, again with the dogs, and a fancy pizza place and cafe on the ground floor. I'm familiar with the pizza place. It has a location in Kendall Square, and it will make you believe a large pizza can be worth $25. As for prices, take a deep breath. Studios go for $2,400 a month. One beds go from $2,700 to $3,800 a month. One beds with a den go for $3,200 to $3,700 a month. And a two-bedroom apartment will set you back $3,800 to $4,600 per month. <sighs> Troy Boston is one of many buildings run by Girding Edlin, which has a certain activist bent. This is at the bottom of the Troy Boston website. Girding Edlund's principles of place guide one simple thing, creating vibrant, inspiring, and sustainable places where people can work, learn, and live. Girding Edlund created the Livable Place Index to measure the global impact that sustainable buildings and their occupants have on energy, air, and water, and Troy Boston is no exception. These principles are build community, create inviting spaces, 
minimize carbon footprint and energy dependence, connect people and buildings to nature, encourage transportation alternatives, craft the first 30 feet, as in make the street level facade interesting, inspire communities with art, make 20 minute living real, as in have most of your needs addressable within a 20 minute walking distance, integrate schools and neighborhoods, preserve symbols that matter. This is great. This is all great. But for whom? Public housing residents? Homeless veterans? Queer people kicked out of their homes? The activists who used to fight for this neighborhood? Whom is this beautiful building for? Finally, a building I first saw in January 2017. I was in Revere because I wanted to know where the Bloom Line went. I followed it to the end and found myself in Wonderland Station, walking down an empty Revere beach with a cold winter breeze. And I saw this modern building of blue and white and gray and turquoise, Ocean 650 Apartments. This building in the middle of a still rather poor town, in front of a public beach, scared me. It partially inspired this podcast. And now, several episodes in, we might be able to make sense of it. This building leans in on its proximity to the ocean. Its website displays weather conditions on Revere Beach. Its floor plans are named after coastal New England towns, and one of its taglines is, Eight miles from businessman to beachcomber. Eight miles from what? from Back Bay. It has the standard luxury apartment amenities, a pool, a fitness center with spin and yoga studios, a dog walk and groom room, again with the dogs, conference rooms, large windows, high ceilings, secured access because there's still a low budget liquor store nearby, and it's all wood and glass and turquoise and beautiful. But there's also the beach. The website gives a quick paragraph on America's first public beach, talking about the roller coasters and the carousels and the hotels, and a throwback that's both Roaring Twenties and White Flight Fifties. The website calls the beach the Disneyland of its day. And indeed, Revere Beach has been a public beach since 1896. A public beach. With that in mind, here's the opening spiel of Ocean 650 Apartments. Dazzling ocean views greet you every morning. Superior finishes and amenities welcome you home at night. Trade your business suit for a bathing suit and take a walk across the street to a 3.5 mile stretch of beach. Living at Ocean 650 is like living at your own personal beachfront resort. And just 10 minutes to Logan Airport, 20 minutes to Boston's restaurants, nightlife, shopping, museums, history, and sports venues. Personal beachfront resort. That, that is why I think appropriation is such a critical part of gentrification. In October 2011, this place was a parking lot. I know because Google Street View hasn't updated this part of Revere since then. This building displaced asphalt, but it is appropriating a public beach 
and pretending it exists for the private enjoyment of very fancy young people. And oh, these people have to be fancy. Studios go for $1,800 a month, one beds go for $2,100 to $2,500 a month, and two beds go from $2,700 to $3,400 a month in Revere. This building scares me. Here's the problem with accusing, accusing, these structures of being instruments of gentrification. What do we even want? What do we want the developers of these buildings to say? Do we want them to be honest about the cities and towns and neighborhoods that they were built in? Do we want the Pine Hills to talk about the opioid epidemic happening in the same zip code? Do we want one Webster to say yes? We are in a city that has been ravaged over and over again by fire and asinine city planning. Do we want Ocean 650 Apartments to not tout the fact that Revere Beach is beautiful even in the middle of January? And what do we want these buildings to do? Do we want to make developers build beautiful, expensive apartments for people who flat out can't afford living in a building younger than they are? Do we want Troy Boston to host an inexpensive soul food restaurant that South End gentrifiers don't want and that wouldn't afford the rent anyway? These developers are almost as helpless against the eldritch forces of capitalism as working class people are. I might have found another insight this week. I think I know why gentrification is so scary. Why it's this existential horror. I think gentrification is the latest form of forces telling marginalized people that they're not welcome, that they're not allowed nice things, that they're not allowed to exist outside a sanitized cultural extract that appeals to well-off white people. I think gentrification is threatening in the same way that performative allies and cultural appropriation and how interpretations of food are threatening. It's threatening because it's a means of extracting wealth, monetary wealth, social wealth, moral wealth out of a people, a culture, while denying the humanity of those very people. It's threatening because it's the latest way that those in power mind the marginalized for everything that could possibly have value. Maybe this is obvious to the people who face the specter of gentrification. After all, I'm following a line of thought defined by black, brown, working class, disabled, queer, femme thinkers. Or maybe I'm losing touch with reality, like someone trying to comprehend the incomprehensible. Right now, alone in a basement on a rainy New England afternoon, I'm not in a position to tell the difference. Next week, we're going to wrap this podcast up and try to piece together an understanding of what gentrification really is. Writing, music, narration, and production by Ajay Pandey. This is an independent study for UMass Amherst under the guidance of Professor Jenny Adams and Professor Sanjay Arwade. For questions, comments, critiques, and concerns, you can contact me at apandey at umass.edu. Thank you for listening.